0: Good evening, I want to welcome all of you to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, to the Writer's Live conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening for a Furman de Brabander's conversation about Do Guns Make Us Free? As you know, this is a, a contentious issue that has all sorts of implications in a variety of subject areas, and this is a... Um, Dr. de Brabender's work uh, presents it in a a new and interesting way. So without further ado, I'd like to encourage you to put your hands together and welcome Dr. Brabender.
1: Thank you. you. Am I speaking to the mic? I'm okay? Good. Okay. Thank you, and thank you for coming on this rainy uh, evening um, to talk about a topic that is not at all cheery but is, of course, I think, very important. Um, And uh, a topic that is in the news on an almost constant basis. Um, We hardly turn our heads and there's another shooting uh, that's raising the issue of pervasive guns and uh, loose gun laws in this country. And uh, it's obvious that other countries around the world have figured out ways to solve this and address it. And the United States is persistent in its, um, what should I say, inability, unwillingness, indecision about how to do this. Um, So I teach philosophy at the Maryland Institute College of Art. Uh, This book emerged in uh, my political theory courses. I was not initially interested in guns. Um, We had a gun in the house when I was a kid for, for hunting. My father Shot a pheasant from the bedroom one night. That's the famous story. But then we were eating the shotgun pellets at dinner the next day. and Maybe my antipathy or worry about guns started during that meal. I don't know. But, um, you know, be, living in, I, I grew up here in Baltimore. Living in Baltimore, the issue of guns is, is always all around. And it's a very curious situation, of course, because I grew up in Towson, which is very safe, and only a few miles away. Uh, you know, through the 90s, the 80s and 90s, there was a murder a day we have two different societies, uh, two different worlds living side by side. The gun rights debate is interesting, and also in this respect, among whites, support for gun rights is very high. Traditionally speaking, uh, and for African Americans, it's been typically low. A majority of African Americans favor gun control, and I, I think that's very interesting, since we should consider the fact that so many African Americans, they actually live on the front lines of, of the gun wars in this country, and so many uh, whites who inhabit safe neighborhoods, I mean, where the gun rights support is highest is rural and, suburb- and and suburban or exurban areas, which do not have a lot of violence, traditionally speaking, and yet that's where the support for gun rights is so strong. Um, I'll give a little bit of a more specific story about how this book started. It, the, the specific argument in this book started with the Sandy Hook shooting back in 2012. Um, it started with an editorial I wrote for the New York Times that was spawned in a conversation with my children. Um, the Sandy Hook shooting was horrible, of course, and it was all over the news, and we were on our way taking my son. We were going to dinner. We were planning his birthday party the next day, which was supposed to be at a movie theater. We were, we were stopped at the light, and of course, NPR came on and was blaring about the Sandy Hook shooting. I, and initially, my instinct was to turn it off, but then my wife and I, we looked at each other and said, Well, they're going to find out about it anyway. So we left it on, and I have four kids, and they all listened. They were perfectly silent listening. And then, when the dispatch was done about the grisly details, I turned it off. There was silence in the car for a few minutes, and then my oldest son said, Dad, I want to be homeschooled. And then he says to me, "In fact, I don't want to go to the movies either with my friends because the shooting at Aurora had happened in Aurora, Colorado, had happened a few months earlier, and it hit me: guns, this proliferation of guns in society, do not make us free. At a certain point, at a certain threshold, becomes quite the opposite." Uh, to the broader motivations for writing the book, uh, I would say this: there is very persuasive data from public health circles attesting to the manifold dangers of abundant firearms and loose restrictions. Our experts right here at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health are one of the uh, centers of this very persuasive data. They are not alone. There is also very persuasive studies by legal scholars and historians uh, pointing out that the Second Amendment was, you know, Or are discussing whether the Second Amendment was written to enshrine a collective right to bear arms. And they argue that it is most certainly not incompatible with regulations. In spite of these uh, persuasive arguments on both sides, what's remarkable to me is that in the last 10 years, they have been sidelined, ignored. They have not been heeded. And in fact, we've seen quite the opposite with every shooting. More guns. Uh, the gun. There's more people buy guns. That was the re- I was just reading about the shooting in Chattanooga last week. The Chattanooga gun stores are ringing up great business. The response of the gun rights movement, the NRA in particular, has always been with every shooting: it's not fewer guns, it's more guns. More, more guns. That's that's the atmosphere we're living in over the last ten to fifteen years. My question uh, and. As we saw when President Obama was trying to bring in new regulations about guns back in after Sandy Hook, in particular the background check, he wanted to have a universal background check for, for guns purchases, upwards of 80% of Americans supported that, and a majority of gun owners supported it, and it failed. Why? So here's the question that I, was in my mind as I was sitting down to write this book. Why have Americans who seem to largely support background checks, for example, and co- what is called now common sense regulations, why have they largely ignored the calls of public health researchers and legal scholars? Or why have they not deemed them sufficiently alarming to make the requisite impact at the polls? The short answer, of course, is the NRA. They are the most powerful lobby in Congress. They have um, impressive control over our pop, over our uh, our politicians. They are able to persuade our politicians to heed the NRA demands over and against the will of the public. And yet, I don't think that the NRA is a sufficient answer in itself because the public can and will and has shown that it can speak up and it can override the will of... Sorry... I thought that was the NRA. The, <laughs> the, um, the, the American public has shown that it can override the will of very powerful lobbies. And uh, we're seeing in many, st- at the state level over the last few years, that the gun control, or what they call the gun safety movement, is making gains. Where they fail at the federal level, they're, f- they're making gains at the state level. Maryland is a case in point. Although we're far from perfect, Washington, Oregon, Nevada is on the ballot in the fall. So, this, so there, so the will of the American people can be heard on this issue. But my question is, what is keeping that? And I'll give a case study uh, to illustrate the problem. So, after the Aurora shooting in tw- in the July of 2012, three years ago, um, the state of Colorado went ahead and they passed stringent gun control laws. Democratic state leaders, uh, senators, they were recalled in Democratic-leaning states in the elections that followed shortly after that. Um, and why that happened is, in fact, the two Democratic leaders. One of them was the the, the state house leader in Colorado. He was taken out. Uh, he was recalled, uh, and he had favored. He had championed this bill. Why did that happen? In why did these guys lose in Democrat Democratic-leaning? Districts is because the people who supported common sense gun control measures, they didn't come out in droves as did the gun rights people. So the the key problem is that the passion is not met on both sides. And I think the time needs to change for that. I also argue in this book that the gun rights movement, one other reason that it's been able to sideline the public health arguments or the legal arguments that would uh, call for greater regulation and critique the gun rights movement. Uh, Another reason that the gun rights movement, the NRA, has been so successful is because of the political arguments they make. Um, And this leads to the title of my book. Uh, Here are two of the major political arguments in question. Guns are the bedrock of our democracy. Our democracy is unthinkable without widespread civilian gun ownership. Civilian gun ownership preserves the sovereignty of a democratic people by posing a physical threat to our leaders who might have tyrannical designs. Many gun rights supporters say the Second Amendment was written to depose or ward away a tyranny and to keep this a democracy. Although it's hard to imagine how that could be the case in 21st century America. I'll get more into that later. Another political argument by the gun rights movement is that guns guarantee all the rights we have. That's an argument I quote in the book uh, by uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, We only have freedom of the press, he says, because of the guns. We only have freedom of speech. We only have freedom of assembly. We only have freedom of religion and freedom of thought because of our guns. Um, As one author put it, the NRA's view is that, quote, the Second Amendment is the teeth in the Bill of Rights. Uh, One conclusion. Gun control advocate put it this way. He thinks that a lot of NRA success in fighting back regulations has turned on their claim that these regulations mean less freedom and that Americans will instinctively opt for more and not less freedom. And there is a lot of weight to that argument, which is, I think, one of the main reasons that the gun control movement is looking to change its name. Now they look to be called the gun safety movement as opposed to the gun control movement because of the less freedom that that implies. So I think a lot would be gained to point out that the NRA is wrong when it comes to freedom. Um, their publication for their members is called First Freedom. Uh, they send their members on freedom cruises. Everything is freedom. They have made freedom synonymous with guns, and that link needs to be severed. The, uh, we need to show, well, I, I think I have shown, and I hope you might agree, or I hope many people will agree, that the more guns we have, we are not more free. We are less free, and our democracy is endangered. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give a little bit of, I'm going to read a passage from one of the chapters, because one of the things that occurred to me, you know, that is integral to any talk of guns in our society and gun culture is fear. If you read the letters and speeches of Wayne LaPierre, he says the first line out of his mouth is I'm not paranoid, but and then the paranoia comes he is afraid of everything and he thinks we have reason to be afraid of everything well he, he has a lot of help in this matter um, our media plays a, a vital role in helping this news and entertainment so I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 1 discussing the role that the media plays in that culture of fear Violent crime is on the decline in America. Those who continue to suffer from it are increasingly restricted and and an ignored lot. Even so, the American public has hardly recognized that it is appreciably safer. Even while violent crime is dramatically down over the last 20 years, Gallup polls released in 2010 and 2011 reveal that most people believe crime is on the rise and getting worse. Gun rights advocates are not ones to disabuse them of this notion. The perception that gun, that crime is rampant is a fundamental element of gun culture. Gun rights advocates argue that more of us should be armed because of the pervasive threat of violence in this society. They share our mortal fear of crime, or they sense it particularly, but they are determined to do something about it. John Pierce, the head of an open carry uh, group, uh, offers a dramatic form of this argument on his organization's website, under the heading "What would the average citizen, or sorry, why would the average citizen need to carry a gun?", Pierce answers with stories plucked, plucked from the day's news, with links to television news clips. Quote, "You might be robbed, have your throat slashed, and be beaten with a hammer," as happened to a store clerk in Dallas. Quote, "You might be robbed and thrown onto subway tracks, like a woman in Philadelphia. You might be stabbed while shopping at." bed, bath, and beyond with your baby, like the woman randomly attacked in New Jersey. You might be beaten with tire irons and baseball bats after getting pizza, like an unsuspecting patron outside a New York restaurant. Pierce concludes this litany of horrors with the warning, The wolves walk among us. One day the predator's eyes will flick toward you, and you better be ready. Social critics have long complained about media influences that distort Americans' perception of crime and incline us to excessive and irrational fear. Television news, which provides Pierce's chilling examples, is especially guilty, it seems. A study from the late 1990s on crime coverage by the major news outlets in Baltimore found that, quote, the typical television news broadcast devotes 38% of its news hole, which excludes weather, sports, promotions, and ads, to crime coverage, and 9% to accidents and natural disasters. Education coverage accounts for about 4.3%, that's 37 seconds on a nightly half-hour show, and politics for 4.4%, that's 38 seconds. Summarizing more recent reports, sociologist Valerie Callanan states that, quote, roughly one-third of all television news is comprised of crime-related content, which is overwhelmingly violent and focused on the most atypical crime events. In a sense, this is unsurprising when you consider the kind of competition the news, especially the local late-night news, is up against. It has to lure viewers gorged on the sensational, the gruesome, and the sexually titillating. Accordingly, local news outlets interrupt their ads with breathless reports of a body found on a street corner, a bullying incident gone horribly wrong, or the next crime trend, or health scare, that viewers should be aware of, mimicking the suspension of, the suspense of the competition. In one egregious case, um, a Baltimore Station, which will remain nameless, promoting coverage of an incident in which a 14-year-old girl and her boyfriend conspired to murder their girl's father, ominously asked, why do some kids kill? Followed by a clip of an expert stating earnestly, they will strike at the most vulnerable moment. Uh, I saw this just sitting there one night watching television. It was Channel 2. It was Channel 2. Um, I have kids, so it caught my attention. Why do some kids kill? And I immediately started thinking, why do some kids kill? And they will strike at the most vulnerable moment. National stories of gore and grief also attract a news audience. The Boston Marathon bombings in April 2013 were a boon to news programs which offered near-continuous coverage of the hunt for the perpetrators. But they are not nearly as effective as dispatches of local mayhem. Local news stations are liable to make viewers believe their hometown is besieged by random violence. As sociologist Callanan points out, quote, the reporting is apt to be relatively thin, essentially devoid of context, details, and explanation, but instead graphic and sensational. Thus, viewers of television news are receiving the message that crime is out of control and likely to strike anyone at any time. News outlets are less likely to reveal the incestuous nature of murders in Baltimore, for example. They won't mention the crime records of victim and assailant if these are known at the time. This information would be detailed in later reports, but these seldom emerge publicly and never on the 11 o'clock news. I'm making reference here to uh, several studies that have been done about crime in Baltimore, that they are perpetrated. Something like 90% of the violent crime in Baltimore is perpetrated by people who already have criminal records, and they're involved in the drug trade. This is not the kind of stuff that is mentioned, of course, in 1130 News, which, again, again, you know, the background. Um, This is the kind of stuff that would lead people to think that This can happen anywhere, anytime, to anybody, at Bed Bath & Beyond, perhaps. Um, This kind of information, the background details on murders and murderers, this would be the natural subject for newspaper reporting, which provides a fuller picture of crime in a given region. But newspaper readership has plummeted in the digital age, and papers, most of which are owned by national chains, have been cutting local reporting for years to save money. Detailed background coverage of local crime has been a casualty. In any case, most people get their crime information from television news, which is more entertaining. Entertainment and news media sow the impression that murderers live in our midst, strangers stalk our children, and even loved ones secretly scheme to do us in. No one is to be trusted. Uh, And I gave, as a case in point, um, Dateline, uh, they had a show uh, about... um, it was a sting operation for, uh, you know, child abusers that lived in the neighborhood, right? Um, oh, sorry, so that is, the, that is the, context, <clears throat> the context that is driving, you know, this kind of gun madness in this country. It makes it seem like a good idea uh, for anyone and everyone to be armed because you don't know when you'll need it. Our entertainment and news media suggest uh, that it could happen anytime, all the time. Uh, I'm going to talk for a little bit now about these political arguments of the NRA and you know, skim over how I rebut them in the book. And then I wanted to talk finally, uh, I have a little bit of a section I'd like to read at the end, about um, what I think is the greatest or overall threat of uh, the gun rights movement, which is rather insidious, probably un- less, less uh, obvious. Um, so... First, as to the claim that we need widespread civilian ownership to combat or prevent government tyranny. Well, this is dubious <coughs> on two fronts. Uh, the contemporary gun rights movement advances an individual right to bear arms. Thanks to uh, the Supreme Court case Heller v. D.C. In, two, in 2008, they, uh, for the first time in the last century, uh, the NRA won the uh, they persuaded, in a very in a split decision, they persuaded the Supreme Court to agree that gun ownership uh, protected by the Second Amendment is an individual right. And I, I raise this because throughout the 20th century, the Supreme Court could not be persuaded of that. Um, it was taken for granted that it was a collective right, and it was only in 2008 that it was persuaded otherwise. The contemporary gun rights movement argues that, it is that the Second Amendment upholds an individual right to bear arms. But if the purpose of the Second Amendment, which opens with the clause that mentions militia, if the purpose of the Second Amendment was to offer the people a way to challenge tyrannical government, it makes more sense that it would enshrine a collective right to bear arms. Militias can combat government more effectively, I would think, than would an assortment of unaffiliated gun owners, no matter how well armed they are. What's more, it seems highly improbable that a collection of unaffiliated gun owners could take on the U.S. government, which has the most sophisticated and most expensive military on earth at its disposal. In general, the gun rights movement looks for overt physical evidence of government oppression. They speak of black helicopters in the sky and black-booted ATF thugs barging in your door. But in modern states, sorry, in modern nation states, oppression does not, necessarily look like that. And here's where I reach for the thinking of uh, French philosopher Michel Foucault. He points out the most effective methods of modern government op- oppression is surveillance. And this is something we know very well now uh, in the war on terror in the 21st century. Uh, we are most thoroughly surveyed, uh, especially here in Maryland down the road from Fort Meade. It is, surveillance is especially nefarious because it controls us without our knowing it, Foucault points out. Surveillance compels us, and we think we are still free. And, of course, the U.S. government has embarked on huge mass surveillance program of its own population. What's more, the war on terror has seen numerous injuries to our civil rights and the expansion of gov- central government. Uh, this is something that the gun rights movement is supposedly very much against, Right central government, strong central government, which expands powers, and thanks to their weapons, they're on the lookout for that. They're not going to let that get carried away, and they're not going to let it oppress us. Apparently, millions of civilian gunners have not persuaded our government against these offenses. To the contrary, the NRA aids and abets the war on terror and the civil rights offenses waged in its name. Wayne LaPierre, the CEO of the NRA, uh, in every speech, he happily points to terrorism and the threat of terror as one more reason for citizens to be armed. So he's very happy to put us under the foot of the war on terror and all the civil rights abuses that are made in its name and the expansion of government. Another argument that the gun rights movement offers, which is their political argument, is that, sorry, one of their political arguments, guns are the condition and guarantee of our freedom and all the rights we enjoy. I think expanded to a certain extent, expansive gun rights undermines the First Amendment. Guns do not invite speech. They chasten it. Uh, They are of their nature threatening. And gun rights advocates, they happily admit as much. The benefit of open carry, they say, is that it serves as a threat. It's a deterrent. Wielded guns carry the message, don't mess with me, leave me alone. Uh, And many states across the country are busy uh, passing open carry laws. Um, Texas just did so right after their uh, sh- the motorcycle gang shooting. They did it the week after. Um, the protesters uh, in favor of that change, they were, there were pictures of them in front of the state capitol in Austin which, with their um, semi-automatic rifle standing there. They didn't invite speech the way they stood, the way they looked. A favorite gun rights saying is, quote, an armed society is a polite society. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. What does that mean? Polite how? By making us less free. An armed society compels us to be careful in what we say, to whom and how we say it. I would argue that it uh, compels us to be reticent or asocial. And I also consider a couple uh, case studies, uh, you know, to bear out the threat of pervasive guns or just the presence of guns and our First Amendment rights. As a professor, I, you know, teach college. I am thinking a lot about the campus carry movement, which thankfully Maryland has not entered into. But nine states or ten states have now jumped on board. I think two more approved it just this year, and something like six or seven other states are considering it. As well this year, campus carry is that uh, students and faculty with concealed carry permits are allowed to carry guns on state university campuses. Again, Texas also approved that the week after the uh, motorcycle gang shooting in Waco. Uh, As a professor, as a teacher, I can tell you guns in the classroom will not make speech easier. They have a greater likelihood of dampening speech, and especially speech that is potentially controversial or offensive. That is the political mission and civic mission of the university. It is to encourage speech, sometimes risky speech, controversial speech. We encourage students to take chances, and the presence of guns is not going to do that. It's going to run quite to the contrary. The college classroom is a special space designated for controversial or offensive language, which which is supposed to be put down in debate the college classroom is a political incubator or an experimental space of sorts. Tensions do and should run high in the classroom when critical and sensitive issues are being debated. Um, but guns... Oh, sorry, and I wanted to raise a point by Dewey. John Dewey, Baltimore-based philosopher, at one point taught at Hopkins. He noted the values, that the value of schools in a democracy is socialization. That's their main value. Students encounter people from radically different backgrounds and learn to collaborate, live with, and negotiate with them as they will have to do when adult citizens in a democracy. Guns do not lend themselves to said socialization. They frustrate it and risk undermining it. Guns communicate and they sow mistrust and suspicion, which are destructive of democracy. Um, I'm going to turn back to the book now and I'm going to read a little bit from the last chapter. Um, which deals with rule of law. The greatest threat that the current gun rights movement poses to our democracy is that it would undermine rule of law. Naturally, gun rights advocates claim the opposite. They say guns are essential for law and order, and the greater observance of laws. With their weapons, gun owners ward off criminals and deter criminal behavior, they may also stymie crimes in progress before law enforcement uh, professionals show up. And, of course, the gun rights movement maintains it would be the protector of the law against any prospective despot or tyrant. Cato Institute fellow David Kopel writes, quote, In much of the world, the armed masses symbolize lawlessness. In America, the armed masses are the law. This begs the question, Why should armed masses spell lawlessness elsewhere, but not here? What is that additional element ensuring that armed Americans are law-abiding, unlike armed citizens everywhere else? Coppola suggests it has something to do with the fact that Americans, quote, do not trust the police and government to protect us from crime, and that America places more faith in its citizens than do other nations. In other words... Because we are given more responsibility, we are more upstanding with our guns and less liable to become an unruly mob. Simply by trusting us, our Constitution renders us more trustworthy. It seems that National Review columnist Charles Cook's argument is also implicit here, namely that the armed American populace has been charged with an auxiliary role in keeping the peace, and it takes that duty seriously. Greater responsibility is inherent in the kind of freedom we Americans enjoy. Copel's argument seems to be an expansion of the gun rights advocates' notion that gun ownership makes people more conscientious, more responsible. Um, there was a suggestion that uh, from some gun rights advocates that we should put more guns in the hands of more black youths in poor inner-city neighborhoods on the premise that this will make them more responsible. And the, the footnote's in here. This is not my words. So I'm quoting someone else. just want that clear. I think we have good reason to suspect both that claim and Coppels. There are always outside features or prior foundations that dispose us to act a certain way. A gun is no magic pill that suddenly makes a person responsible, and a mass of guns heaped on a population does not magically make it grateful and awestruck by the trust placed in it. If gun ownership makes a person more responsible, it likely enhances the nascent responsibility that was already present. And if it makes that person reckless, it is only exacerbating antisocial tendencies that were already there. As gun rights advocates like to say, quote, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Guns are instruments of existing behavior. They are not themselves responsible for crime, gun rights advocates mean to say. The majority of gun owners are an upstanding lot, not corrupted by their weapons. But if we accept their argument, we must also accept the reverse guns are not of themselves responsible for good behavior in individuals either. They cannot transform personal behavior or make someone good and ensure that an armed society will be more polite than it already is. The problem is, a profusion of guns and people resorting to them eats away at that foundation that ensures that the lawful among us remain lawful. Stanley Fish um, he is an academic, he writes in New York Times on occasion, says it is, quote, a commonplace of democracy that ours is a government of laws, not men. A government of men is one in which laws issue from the will and desires of those who happen to be in authority. In a government of laws, the preferences of men and women, even those holding high office, are checked by the impersonal requirements of an impersonal law. Under a government of laws and in a democracy dedicated to egalitarian principles, citizens are also checked by the impersonal requirements of an impersonal law and may not interpret the law in their individual manner in the heat of the moment. This is what distinguishes rule of law as such. Citizens defer to this immaterial entity, this invisible code, and they expect their peers to do the same. It's at work, for example, when you're driving down the road and a car comes at you. You do not expect that that car is going to veer into your lane. You expect that person obeys the rules of the road, knows them, is going to keep on his or her side as well. That's rule of law. Um, Josh Horowitz relates the following story about rock musician and strident gun rights advocate Ted Nugent, which he borrowed from the pages of Rolling Stone magazine. In a 2007 concert, Nugent came on stage decked out in full-on camouflage hunting gear and wielded two machine guns while raging. Obama, he's a piece of bleep. I told him to suck on my machine gun. After some foul epithets directed at Hillary Clinton, Nugent concluded his rant by screaming, Freedom! Freedom! Machine guns are instruments of war. They are intended for taking on a similarly armed enemy. Nugent strode brazenly on stage with those weapons because he knew he would not be shot down by someone in the audience. He would not have done it so casually and commonly used like a war, war, uh, sorry, he would not have done it so casually and gleefully in that setting where machine guns are common and commonly used like a war zone. People who suffer through the daily threats and toils of war would be more serious about the prospects of toting and flaunting their weapons. At the very least, they know what it might well bring in return. In a war zone, a gun is no symbol of freedom, but a symbol of constraint, compulsion, and necessity. It is an instrument for survival. Ted Nugent's act insults all those who live under the brutal realities of war while he swings machine guns on stage and screams about freedom. He is free, but he is wholly ignorant of what makes him so. And that's an argument I believe applies to the whole open carry movement. When Nugent lugs his weapon on stage, he is inadvertently expressing his faith in rule of law. He assumes that it extends over his audience and that no one will draw a weapon on him. Like many gun owners, he will claim the contrary. They will aver that their their guns are the condition of their safety. Nugent will say he needs his guns to be free, but it's not guns that provide either safety or freedom, and they never will. It is rule of law. Thanks to widespread, unspoken, and nonviolent deference to the law, Nugent and company are safe. They can wave their weapons and carry them down the street and not be shot, something that is not the case in real war zones where rule of law is gone. To the extent that individuals credit their personal weapons with ensuring their safety, they ignore the rule of law. For those who inhabit lawless areas or areas where rule of law is weak, a gun does not make one secure. It is not the cure-all, safeguarding one's life, but a temporary measure at best. Uh, James Scott, uh, the elderly man in Baltimore, uh, I described him in a previous chapter. He was cited in the book by John Lott, uh, who is a very well-known gun rights uh, proponent. Uh, He cites the case study of James Scott, this old man living in Baltimore, West Baltimore, uh, who uh, had had a gun, and he was living in constant fear. Uh, He was being targeted by drug gangs and criminal element in his neighborhood, and then the police found out that he didn't have a license for the gun, and they took his gun away, and then he was shortly thereafter killed by criminal element. And John Lott said that James Scott, he should have had his gun. He needed his gun in order to be safe and to be free. This is held up as a model by the gun rights movement. James Scott um, fought a constant battle against criminals in his besieged neighborhood. He was a case in point. His life was by no means safe and secure, and his gun never made it so. It merely helped him survive. It boggles the mind that gun rights advocates might idolize this man's case or cite it as some kind of model. His experience is to be lamented and prevented. God help anyone who has to live by the gun. It is a fearful, miserable existence. We cannot take lightly the prospect of Nugent and company flaunting their weapons in public. We cannot take lightly the open carry movement and the concealed carry movement and the pervasiveness of guns in in public. It is no harmless, innocent act, but one that affects us all. A society that is progressively more armed, expressing weapons in public and appealing to them with greater regularity, such as in stand-your-ground states, is one that erodes the rule of law. As more people are armed in public, it sends the message that rule of law is weak. Wayne LaPierre would doubtless say that message is accurate. I argue it is not. Violent crime rates have plunged in America, at least in many or most neighborhoods in recent decades, and the nation is safer at large than it once was. As for those areas where people can walk around armed, the shopping mall, the diner, college campuses in some states, they are safe because rule of law is safe, is strong there. If gun owners say they are stronger, and they are safer in such places thanks to their guns, they are simply wrong. But so long as gun owners abetted by Wayne LaPierre sow the message that rule of law is weak and they burden rule of law with doubt and suspicion more and more people may come to harbor to harbor similar suspicions and guess what they will arm themselves too this of course this is lapierre's game plan fill everyone with mortal fear that rule of law is threatened or has vanished and more people will buy guns it is a tragic game plan of course for one of the key ingredients of rule of law is a silent trust that it works Rule of law requires our faith in it, a broader belief in acceptance. It is one of those social phenomena that falls apart when that belief no longer pertains. This is precisely what Stand Your Ground threatens to do. It is an open refusal to defer to law, to defer to a common judge, as philosopher John Locke put it, and to assist that others do the same. As more individuals prosecute law themselves in Stand Your Ground states, And now there are about 23 out there. As more individuals prosecute law themselves in stand-your-ground states, confronting perceived threats in public, others will decide that they must be similarly armed and prepared at the very least to deal with would-be George Zimmermans, uh, the man who uh, shot and killed Trayvon Martin. Um, You have to be prepared at the very least to deal with would-be George Zimmermans roving the streets, committing travesties of justice. What if George Zimmerman thinks you look suspicious? Stand Your Ground will embolden others to act like Zimmerman himself, extirpating bad guys. If enough people make frequent appeals to Stand Your Ground, everyone else may reasonably doubt whether rule of law applies to them or protects them at all. So I think that's where I'm going to stop. I was told to stop about there. And peacefully, I was told to stop here. And then um, so I can talk to you all to uh, see what questions you have. And I don't know if, is there a way you're going to run this? John?
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that you wrote this book. But let's start with the sick gun culture, just to mention two cases. One is uh, the American sniper takes a mentally disturbed veteran to a shooting range. The, the, other, the other case was the father takes the daughter to a shooting range and she shoots the instructor yeah and, and these are just you know we could go on and on for an hour yes these, these cases like that sure uh, i appreciated uh hearing you yesterday on the mark steiner show thank you because uh charles cobb was on the show yeah. and <laughs> and somebody has to challenge him and you did a great job but the first the first point is when he said there's 30 million guns in the country, you had to correct him and say there's probably 300 million. And he said, well, he knew that, but he just misspoke. But you also got out of him, he did admit that nonviolence was very important in the civil rights movement. So th- so I, I,
1: well, that was easy because he said it himself. I read his articles <laughs> beforehand. Uh, his argument was quite simple, is that, and unsurprising, is that the civil rights mo- workers, they, they had guns around them. While the activists and protests themselves did not have guns because they all recognized the power of nonviolent protests, mm-hmm. they were protected, of course, because, as he put it, they were fighting white racist terrorists. I would want to have guns as well um but one thing that's really interesting is if we're going to apply that discussion to today is our you know i don't believe I don't believe the the, the gun owners in America are justified in living the same kind of mortal fear, this war on terror which is propagated through propaganda, quite frankly, um, is a lot less threatening than the media would have you believe. Um, After the South Carolina shooting last month, um, I had found an article uh, that pointed out that police chiefs across the country are far more worried about uh, right-wing extremists in this country than they are Muslim extremists. In fact, the number of deaths at the hands of right-wing extremists uh, dwarfs the number of deaths of those at the hands of Muslim extremists in this country. So we're not even paying attention to where the real threat is. My, That's what my, I would say. The,
0: the, the one question I wanted to ask you is, yes. I wrote a letter to the son about uh, Mr. Hauser. I think uh, you know and most people in the room probably know, he bought the, he bought the 40 Automatic in a, uh, in a pawn shop. Yes. So in, in the letter that I wrote to the son, I said, why, why would not the person that sold him, maybe even the owner of the pawn shop, be indicted, and also the gun manufacturer. I know there's been a couple of suits, so if you could
1: talk. I looked me. into it. Uh, the problem is, uh, apparently pawn shops are supposed to have background checks. I wasn't aware of that. The problem is that the state of Georgia and state of Alabama are two of the worst states in the country for reporting mental health records to the national background checks. It, it's, it's abysmal. Uh, states in this country are not required to report mental health problems. Or whether people have been you know put in um, detention for mental health problems, they're not required to, to report that to the FBI and the national background check system, and so many states do very little at all. Until recently, the state of Pennsylvania had something like seventeen that they'd reported. Um, So that was the the major drawback there. But, you know, we can talk back and forth about the background check system over and over, and that's come up with the Charleston shooting as well. Apparently he passed a background check. But the fact of the matter is there's a loophole for private gun sales in this country. Any one of these individuals can go get a gun very easily. So, I mean, we we shouldn't even really talk about uh, the background checks and whether they apply until we seriously do them in this country. We're not seriously doing them. We're not seriously trying.
0: Thank you very much for spoke. Good evening. Very good presentation. Um, Realizing that there are a lot of citizens who do have open carry permits, are you in favor of what we call gun-free zones, where someone who has an open carry permit, when they go to a theater, library, universities or colleges or other large public institutions, they should check their gun in at the door, and then when they leave, they check their gun out. You assume if they're going to be really, truly law-abiding, they would do this if there is a gun-free zone. What is your opinion on that? I don't expect the criminals to obey that, but that's... Of course not. I
1: mean, that's a very difficult difficult. discussion to have in a society of 300... I mean, in many ways, we've already... You know, um, we're beyond the pale. You know, we have 300 million guns in this country, um, and it's extremely... (laughs) Thanks to the NRA's efforts, it's very easy for criminals to get their hands on guns. Very easy. So, I mean... You ask a difficult question in that respect, um, I am in favor of removing guns as far as possible from the public sphere. Uh, I think they 're better kept at home for private purposes for hunting for self protection, but i don 't believe i mean the whole premise of my book is where i 'm discussing the political effect of guns, their effect on public their on the public life, their effect on our democracy that means that our democracy and our freedoms are better preserved to the extent that they are. Kept out of the public sphere. That's all I would say to that at this point. But thank you for the question. Uh, In your book, you talk about... uh, You discuss Machiavelli's uh, um, support of, like, civil... um, Like a civil army, like a civil... Civil militia. Civil militia, yeah. And um, I was wondering if you had ever taken any, like, notice to the end of conscription in the United States and the beginning of, like, the private gun rights movement. I think they, like, occurred around the same period. And if you think that uh, the return of, like, his inscription would um, somehow, like, uh, cause this fervor of gun rights advocates to, like, go down, or do you think it would have any impact? Do you mean, like, a draft? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I am in favor of a draft, but I don't, I mean, for different reasons. I don't know what effect it would have on the guns. I would say... uh, one of, the legal his, one of the legal scholars I deal with in my book, a man by the name of Saul Cornell, he teaches up at Fordham, and he points out that, uh, he argues that, you know, uh, in the revolutionary era period, which is, that's the period that the NRA points to and say, hey, look, you know, they're the reason we have guns. Well, they had a very different conception of guns and gun ownership. And Saul Cornell points out that uh, gun ownership was inextricably tied to your duty to serve in a civil militia. You could have it for self-defense and hunting, but you also better serve in that militia. And guess what? That militia wants to know what you have. They want to inspect the rifle. They want easy access to it. In other words, they want regulations. And they want a lot of regulations, because Saul Cornell points out that George Washington, he was not very happy in the early days of the war with how the militias were performing. So this idea that we just have some unaffiliated individual gun owners out there in America and they're just going to mesh together into this fantastic fighting force to take on the Marines and the SEALs, that's magical thinking. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting point of view. And I, I think it would be very interesting to these these days if uh, gun owners were required to take part in uh, militia's can. Uh, complete with training and rules and inspections and drills. <laughs> Is that okay? Thank you.